Welcome to a fantastic edition of Rebellion's educational series. I'm here with the Nobel Prize winning professor from Stanford, Chicago. Paul Romer is really a hero and an icon in the field of economics. To have him on today is absolutely a life's honor. Paul, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, it's great to be here. You know, sometimes people give that whole litany of it was like University of Rochester to Chicago, Berkeley, Stanford, NYU. And I always feel like when people give that introduction, it's kind of like, come on, guy, why, why can't you hold a job? I mean, why, why do you have to keep leaving town every few years? But uh, oh, and, I have moved around quite a bit. No, and chief economist of the World Bank. You're uh, one, one of the, uh, you know, uh, most respected minds, you know, in America and academically globally. So uh, today, let's, I'd love to talk to you about hyperinflation, what we can learn from history and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, protecting science. So let's start with hyperinflation. Do you see it? Is it here? Uh, it's definitely not here. And I think um, the people who are worried about it are overestimating the risks, um, at least at the moment, um, we are not the moment at this, this epoch, we have central banks that know how to keep inflation under control. So as inflation starts to pick up, they will do their job. They'll they'll slow things down. This is the this is the amazing legacy of the decisions that Paul Volcker took in the 1980s. In the 70s, many economists were seriously concerned that inflation might forever keep increasing and just spiral out of control. We had a series of episodes of inflation going up a slowdown during a recession, but then going up even more after that. But Volcker just completely turned things around and showed that if a central bank wants to stop inflation, a central bank can do it. And so in the wake of that that discovery, I I think we're not going to see the kind of hyperinflation we saw during the the, the, 20s and 30s. Hmm. Interesting. And so how do you feel about migration? Is New York gonna stay the power it is? How much will Florida attract? What yeah. do you see the next few years with those two if, states? If I if I compare hyperinflation and migration, migration strikes me as a much more serious problem. It's funny. I, at the bank, I used to have trouble with people. I would tell them, I don't want to worry about the problem that we might have. I want to worry about the problems we do have. Let's work on those first. We have a huge problem with uh, potential migration around the world in the following sense. There are 750 million people who report when when asked that they would like to leave and move to another country right now. The world has no capacity to accommodate that kind of desire right now. And if it happens in an uncontrolled way, you know, what we saw in Europe is that modest uh, migration flows, you know, on the order of like a million people could threaten the political stability of, uh, of of an entire nation. So we have kind of European democracy that survived the threat of fascism, the threat from communism, which might be destroyed by uh, uncontrolled migration. So it's this kind of ticking time bomb, and uh, we have no way to, to manage it. That's that's really, I think, morally acceptable. We, you know, the all we're trying to do is just force people to stay in conditions of of real uh, of real misery and, and desperation, and we should be trying harder to give them a chance to find someplace better to go. Are we talking about 476 Rome here? Or I mean, how, uh, how, how bad could it get for Europe? Um, 
Well, I, th I think if you look at what, you know, what's happened in Hungary, for example, and you see an erosion of institutions of government as opposed to uh, the further strengthening of those institutions. And you look at the influence of, you know, some of the parties on the right um, in, in other countries in Europe and the, the return of, of kind of violence, uh, you know, right-wing extremists who are willing to resort to, to violence. These are signs of a real erosion of a kind of a quality of life that's built up over, yeah. over centuries. What are your thoughts on the Turkish lira falling maybe 80% in value over the last five years due to Erdogan's very, you know, yeah. awful policies, according to many. Yeah. yeah, unfortunately with Turkey, this is kind of deja vu all over again. Um, when I was saying we won't have hyperinflation, uh, we won't, we won't also won't have like depression of the kind we had during the 1930s. That's true in company in countries that have, you know, reasonably effective institutions. Turkey is still a country that doesn't have strong enough uh, institutions of government to, to manage the, the basics of macroeconomic stability. So it, it's going to go through another, it's going through another cycle of, you know, kind of crisis and, and, and turmoil. You just hope cumulatively they'll start to develop the capacity that other countries have to just manage a, of a, a, a floating exchange rate and uh, keep the economy growing at a stable rate. So when you look at a country like Turkey or a country like Venezuela, your feeling is that the hyperinflation that's been experienced there is just due to a degrading of the government agencies and a lack of trust in the government. Yeah, I mean, if the government can't function, if you don't have people who can make the right decisions and do their jobs, uh, you could indeed end up with, with hyperinflation. So this is my confidence about how things will play out in the West is a sign of my general confidence in the, uh, the institutions of government. But we shouldn't be complacent about this because you can destroy institutions of, of, of government. Uh, I've got to ask you about Russia then. How, yeah. how, how do you feel about the way Putin, who clearly is, seems to be a, a strong man in power, how he has been able to navigate Russia's economy? And I'd love your thoughts there. Yeah. Um, well, when, when people look back at the era of my lifespan, I think the, the thing that the historians will focus first on the successful transition from communism to, to sort of a more modern economy mm -hmm. in China. And they'll con contrast it with the, the failure uh, to, to make that transition or the, the, the much more unsuccessful transition in, in Russia. But do you think, think it was simply uh, due to one man gaining power, whereas one man did not gain power in China? Is, is there more to it? Uh, I No, I don't think so. Um, you know, if Putin were to have a heart attack and die, I think there'd still be these systemic weaknesses in Russia that um, uh, would lead to another uh, autocrat like Putin in charge or would lead to uh, the, the takeover of the economy by a bunch of gangs and thugs and uh competing gangs and thugs. And those are your two choices. I can see why the, the people of Russia would rather have an autocrat than a bunch of competing thugs uh, fighting with each, with each other. But what's what's unfortunate is they didn't establish that just the basic institutions of, of kind of rule of law and governance and you know establish a process for a gradual uh, evolution of those institutions. This, this idea that the big bang would be uh, the right way to make the transition that, that some of my colleagues uh, recommended. 
I think it's really uh, uh, not worked well at all. So then when you look at a Napoleon, for instance, he was able to keep value because he made sure his government agencies were respected despite being an authoritarian. Mm-hmm. Would you say you know, he ruled without fear, more respect? Yeah, well, I, I guess the way I would judge this would be to ask, in a nation, can the, the system of governance attract some of the most talented people in that nation to help the government do its job? And if it can still attract the most talented people, it'll have the human capital and the skill, and it's got the respect uh, to do the kind of job a government has to do. And if it can't, uh, uh, then the, the nation's in, in, for, uh, in for a hard, uh, a hard road. Uh, very, very well said, Paul. Uh, really, very well said. So let's get to uh, America's migration. Uh, do you see urban uh, strength kind of strengthening? Do you see more of a shift to, you know, kind of country yeah. and suburban life? Where, where do you see the mix of country, suburban, urban over the next you know, yeah. years? Well, you, as, you, as, you, as you know, I've, I've thought a lot about uh, uh, the emergence of new cities. And I think of a city as something on a scale of about, say, 10 million people. There's many different scales, but say 10 million people. Um, if there are some people who are still talking about creating new cities in the United States. I, I'm, I don't know that there's enough demand to make it viable, uh, enough demand, unfulfilled demand for urban life to make it viable to start a new city in the United States. We, we see that, 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 you know, like prices for, you know, land and, you know, residential uh, properties um, have generally gone up in the most successful cities, but we have lots of cities where they, you know, where they, they haven't gone up. So um, uh, the, the dynamics I think that's playing out is that just as in industry, the biggest cities have a, a substantial advantage compared to the medium-sized ones. So it's a kind of a winner-take-all dynamic where the biggest cities are going to keep getting uh, bigger. Um, people say in rural areas could move into the, some of the declining cities, but uh, they can't move into the most successful uh, cities. And, and we haven't figured out as a nation how to you know, manage that, that whole ecosystem. So we do have people in rural areas who really feel like they're being left behind. And a lot of our, our political uh, polarization right now is along the lines of the successful urban, you know, uh, elite centers and the marginalized rural uh, places where people are, are, are feeling left behind. But uh, as I said, I don't think just starting a brand new city is necessarily going to, I mean, it's worth considering, but I don't think it's necessarily the best uh, uh, the best strategy in uh, for the nation. I, I I suspect if we could figure out how to do it with a light touch, the best thing for the U.S. would be to make sure we have a number of competing centers in, in the country. So take for example housing prices uh, in New York. If you're a young you know uh, man and woman who want to start a family, they're just maybe they're just they didn't complete college. Uh, it's just almost impossible to move to New York and have a prospect of, of owning a house. But they can move to Houston, where they keep building new housing, where the price of housing is not so high. A couple like that can actually get a start in Houston. So it's good that this country has both a New York and a Houston and other competing cities. 
So I would kind of try and aim policy toward making sure there are enough successful cities that uh, they, they that compete with each other and that are trying hard to not become one of those declining cities where where people are, are, are left behind. So that would be my strategy for the United States uh, relative to say the Venezuela, where, where the government has just completely collapsed. I think we should be thinking about how can we create a city where 10, maybe a couple of them, 20 million Venezuelans could move to and just leave the country because you know, forcing them to stay is trapping them in conditions where they can't thrive. And, and I think uh, the threat of losing so many of your people is one of the most powerful ways to discipline a, a government which is misbehaving. I know it's it's tough. Uh, what to do? Do you want to send in military or take? Oh, I know. I know the answer to that one. No. Yes. <laughs> no. We, don't, we no. do not want to occupy uh, any any place. Um, but but I think we could create these kind of secure enclaves. Uh, you know that that actually brings me to. Are, are you along? Are you an apocalypse now uh, person? Would you say no? No. Well, uh, well. I mean, I I just saw the movie when the la within the last year. My wife, you know, said, "Paul, you cannot be a you know illiterate person if you haven't seen Apocalypse Now." So so I just watched it recently. But um, I, I'm you know I'm not a I'm not a uh, you know like emotionally connected with the kind of the the military experience, but. Um, but, but I do think uh, that, that you know, military organizations play a very important role. But if, if you look at, if you, if, you use, if you just do the math about the US um, kind of efforts in, in the Middle East, like Iraq, Iran, we were spending about $130,000 per square kilometer to try and uh, stabilize and uh, these countries. Yes. And, and George W. Bush's investment in the Iraq war was the worst uh, investment in the last, maybe in humankind. Yeah, and, and if you look at like a place like New York City, I mean, you can't, we spend far more than $130,000 a year to yeah. secure a square kilometer. So instead of trying to spread our resources so thinly, if we'd focus those resources on, you know, like one one hundredth of that amount of area, uh, just a few cities, a few places the size of, you know, Hong Kong or Singapore, New York City, those we could have kept secure uh, with the kind of expenditure like New York spends on police e each year, which is, you know, maybe five to ten times what we were spending in those countries. If we'd made some secure cities, those could have succeeded. But the point. military, you know, the military um, intervention strategy uh, failed because we were spread too thinly. The other thing was that you can't make a place secure unless you can run the police force. You, you don't secure an area with an army. You need a police. And to run the police, you've got to have some system of, of government that works. You can't have corrupt competing uh, gangs. So I wish we'd thought about creating security by establishing places that were like Hong Kong rather than by trying to go in and, and occupy the way we did in, in Iraq, because it, the Iraq strategy, the Afghanistan strategy, they've just completely failed. Well, I mean, that was the, you know, the, essentially the ethos of Apocalypse Now, that there was no strategy and that the Americans were just kind of doing this clown parade. Uh, yeah, yeah. And also, I mean, you got to recognize you're dealing with people, you know, people, it's not like they're cattle or machines. They have their own desires. They have their own wishes, uh, their own beliefs, and, and you can't, through force, just compel them to do something you want. What you can do, though, is you can offer them opportunities. So if you create a place that's kind of like a new Hong Kong and say, look, if you want to come, 
raise a family, get your kids educated, have a job, you know, here's a place you can do it. We're not going to force it on you. If you don't want that, you, you don't have to have it. So if we recognize that people need to be able to make their own choices, but then create options for them, uh, I think uh, I, I think we could do a better job of helping people who want something different. And we'd have a much more potent tool for destabilizing uh, a regime like uh, like Venezuela. If you think about what what really destroyed the legitimacy of government in you know communist uh, say East East Germany, when a government actually has to threaten to kill people to keep them from escaping, it, you know it, it's you're beyond the point where you can pretend there's any legitimacy there. Yeah. So I, I think we should just be making it clear. Uh, that lots of people want to leave Venezuela if they if they had a chance. We just need to make a, uh, create a place where they will go, and I think that will ultimately, you know, topple the the, the terrible regime that's that's in place there. So you believe in investing in super cities? It really? Well, um, I, I you know I think the, the the basic unit I think is like you should if you're in a start a new city you should make sure you could get to 10 million people i think that's like the minimum viable you know kind of product in the city market um there will be cities that will or kind of urban areas that will grow to 50 100 million people we don't know for sure how those were going to are going to turn out each time uh, we we get to a certain size we say oh surely this is the biggest size like oh we you know and if you look back in history uh, you couldn't possibly have a city of more than a million people or more than 5 million or more than 10. We, we might finally get to a point where we say, oh, it really wasn't possible to make it work when you're above like, you know, 50 million. But who knows, maybe the 50 million to 100 million places will turn out to be the most, uh, you know, most exciting, productive places to, to work. But but I'm pretty sure that the cities of a million people are not going to be competitive in that global uh, market. Like think of the most talented young people who are thinking about where to go get a job. They can go anywhere. They're unlikely to go to a city of less than uh, a million people when they've got these cities of 10 million or more they can move to. Uh, with affordable housing and strong police. Right. If they, you know, if they're safe, right. If the housing is affordable, right. Exactly. Yeah, uh, no, definitely. So let's talk about protecting science. I know you're very passionate about that. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the amazing thing about the progress that, that humans have, have made is that it's the result of discovering facts. If we know what's true, we can use that truth to do amazing things. So if we're guided by the truth instead of by dogma, um, all kinds of opportunities open up to us. Science is this remarkable system for discovering the truth. Um, it, it's the only system humans have ever established for converging on agreement about the, uh, even agreement of any kind that doesn't involve coercion. Everything else involved, you know, uh, coercion. But because science is so effective at establishing and convincing people of the truth, we've got, you know, billions of people all over the planet who've converged on beliefs about what's what's true. Uh, but it, it, it depends on... Uh, uh, a certain set of, uh, it's a social system, and it depends on certain kinds of behaviors and, and uh, just activities that are, you know, essential to make it work. One of the things that, that is critical to science is the notion of a reputation. I don't just publish an anonymous paper. I put my name on a paper so that if it turns out that if I report some data and I, I fudged the data, I cheated, 
people will find that and then they'll know I was the one who did it. And then I will be effectively, you know, excommunicated. I will never be taken seriously as a scientist again. But we've got a whole generation of young people who've grown up thinking, oh, you know, communication should be anonymous. Uh, you know, you should just look at what I write. You shouldn't have to know who I am. And uh, what they're gonna discover is that without reputations, that where people try and maintain a reputation for being trustworthy and, and reliable, we're just gonna have a world that's just, you know, just with this proliferation of, of fakes and deep fakes and deeper fakes. Yeah. And we're not going to be able to establish what's true anymore. Of course, uh, you know, uh, Crock always said McDonald's great value was the, the trustworthiness people felt in the name McDonald's. And yeah. Yeah. If you don't have trust, you know, what do you have? And so there is so much of a, a problem with anonymous uh, it's kind of spam yeah. out there. Yeah. So, yeah. so when you imagine, talk about imagine there was a there was a warehouse and there was just a, a single window where things could come in and out, and you can go there and you say, "Well, I want to get some food." They say, "Sure, okay, but we're we're the anonymous food provider. We'll we'll give you some food, but you don't know who we are." <laughs> People would not go buy food from the anonymous food provider. Uh, and in the same way, I don't see how these young people think that you can have a, a world of science or intellectual discourse without uh, uh, reputations and trust that's built on people trying to protect their reputations. Yeah. So I guess you're referring to the, the vaccination situation that's going on in the United States. And well, I, that's, 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 one, that's one side of it. Um, but I, I think, you know, it, it is a, an issue that goes back uh, further. Um, you know, the, the, the emergence of digital communication has just radically changed things. Um, so it's much tougher to establish a reputation in, um, in the world of digital, uh, you know, digital communication. Uh, let me give you an example. I, I've started to learn to, to code uh, and I think code will be one of the ways we communicate in science, just like math became a critical language for communication. Um, so I have, I have a GitHub site. Uh, there's a picture of me there. People can go download code. It dawned on me at some point, that anybody out there could get a picture of me, put a, create a GitHub account, say this is, you know, Paul Romer, New NYC, and pretend to be me. And then other academics could unknowingly go download, say, malware, thinking they're, they're getting, you know, software from, from me. So I need a way to establish at GitHub or on my blog or on Twitter. I need a way to establish, no, no, this is the place you can count on where the Paul Romer who's- That's a brilliant point. If I came across a Paul Romer GitHub account, I would assume it's just a Paul yeah. Romer fan who wanted and, to put stuff up and he could be from Ukraine for all I know. Yeah, yeah. there was, there was. I discovered, somebody sent me a Twitter account where someone was using my picture as the part of the profile for the Twitter account. They weren't trying to use my name for some reason, but randomly they had just taken my picture. And I realized we're so prone to just trust the image, you know, it's like a simulation of being face to face with the person. And we've, and we've just failed to take on board how easy it's gonna to be to fake uh, things like pictures, like borrow them or, or, or fake them. So, so we need to figure out how to uh, have like digital communication, uh, but where we have some assurance about who it is we're, we're dealing with. It, it's a little bit like what Twitter Verified does, but we need to create a system where individuals are actually in control, that I can, I can do it. I don't have to go ask Twitter for this. I can find a way to establish my reputation and, and you know, put my, uh, uh, my 
you know, seal my digital signature on things. Another episode that made me realize how serious this is was when I got an email that pretended to be from Paul Romer. And so wow. like, I knew that wasn't Paul Romer, but I started thinking, how does anybody else know whether that's me or, or not? So, um, so we need some new tools to just uh, uh, facilitate, uh, know who you're dealing with and, and protect against the, you know, the imposters. Oh, no, that's, that's an absolutely great point. Yeah, and, and just if I can just do a tiny bit of self-promotion. This is actually the thing I'm most engaged in right now. I've actually, I'm starting a new nonprofit where part of our goal is to make it possible for anybody, like starting with academics, but ultimately a journalist, uh, a person who takes photographs. I mean, anybody has a mechanism for establishing that any digital artifact that they've produced was actually produced by them so that we can have reputations in this world of, of uh, digital communication like we used to have in the old world of analog communication. Speaking of reputations, you know, my all-time uh, science hero is probably Richard Feynman. Do you have a yeah. science hero that's inspired you? Oh, that's a good question. Well, Feynman is, um, he's, he's right up there at the top. Um, I do quote him sometimes when I try and convey the, the the spirit of 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 science my uncle worked with him my, my great uncle worked with him at the manhattan project and yeah uh yeah no he was an amazing amazing individual and yeah he so I, his ability to make everything simple and practical was what drew me yep yeah uh i think uh you know einstein was somebody who is a younger person i i had great kind of admiration for and and it inspired me a little bit to know that you know that he he had not been like a stellar student when he was, you know, first starting out. So, uh, um, but I think Feynman actually did a better job of something that I've really come to believe is so important, which is it's not enough to just discover a truth or an insight or a better way to think about something. You got to figure out how to communicate it to others. So attention to just careful exposition, careful communication. Uh, is is undervalued and uh, we underinvest in it. But Feynman was one somebody who uh, did an extraordinary job of of, and it was just through hard work and persistence of coming up with better ways to explain to others. Here's how to think about it, including this kind of amazing device of the the Feynman diagram for thinking about these these complex uh, uh, questions. So I, I, have, I have that I, book I on my shelf. Right? About him, uh, sir. I said I have the five of Feynman diagram book on my shelf, but yeah. I, I would have to say that his O-ring uh, talk for the yeah. calendar explosion might have been one of the coolest moments of the 20th century uh, from a science perspective. I, you know, I've never seen that I'll, after we finish. Oh, you must. I, it's, it's one of my favorites. I've watched it a hundred times. It's uh, just marvelous. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, a related thing I do think about sometimes is who do I describe as my, my heroes? And um, so there are some people in the world of, of, of science, um, but uh, I, I also like to remind people about, say, uh, Paul Volcker, who spent his whole life working for the U.S. government, or Dwight Eisenhower. These were individuals who um, made important decisions. We had a system where it was they had the ability to make a decision. They were they knew they would be held responsible if they made the wrong decision. But instead of hesitating, instead of like setting up committees, you know, or having some legalistic process, these were people who took responsibility, made crucial decisions and decisions that 
it turned out to be right and uh, were you know kind of pivotal in uh, creating the world that we we live in today. So uh, I wish more people appreciated the power uh, that one can have if you're a leader in these positions in the government and not just think about becoming a leader, say in a some tech startup. Was the rebuilding of Europe your favorite of Eisenhower's decisions or? Oh, uh, you know, I, I think the, the, the story that's the most interesting, I think was the decision um, about when to launch the, the D-Day invasion. Um, the, he, he, John Kennedy uh, met Eisenhower at, at Kennedy's inauguration and Kennedy making small talk asked, um, uh, what was the most important element in the success of the, the D-Day in, invasion? And without hesitating, Eisenhower said it was our meteorologists, you know, better scientists who understood weather, who helped Eisenhower make this critical decision about whether to postpone or go ahead in times when um, the weather was, was bad. Uh, so, and I think it's a great example for thinking about like uh, COVID. I, you know, Eisenhower did not quote, follow the science. He knew that he had to make the decision ultimately about whether to go ahead, but he listened to the scientists. He said, tell me everything you know, what's your best guess? What are your, what's your range of uncertainty? So the scientists contributed in a very important way. They saw that the weather was really terrible, but it was likely to get somewhat better. And there were some real risks if they postponed and waited you know, to the next opportunity. So Eisenhower decided to go ahead. The Germans saw the same bad weather didn't realize it might get a little bit better. They assumed the Americans wouldn't launch the invasion. And so they were unprepared. There were people were off on a training exercise. Some of the leaders weren't at their posts. So the Americans, I always thought that we, uh, that the bad weather made it harder for the, the invasion to succeed. It, it may actually have made it easier because the Germans were much less prepared when we actually did did the launch, but the reason like I love this, I really I love this story is because um, it, it kind of reminds us that there's an important role for science, but there's ultimately a, a different role for a leader who's got to take all of the information and make a decision. And uh, during COVID, I think what we had was um, too little leadership and and too many scientists who thought that they should be in charge when that wasn't really their job. Fantastic points. Uh, such a wonderful conversation. I couldn't be more thankful, uh, Paul. This was really just awesome. Uh, you, yeah. Uh, well, I guess. I guess if I'm, I'm trying to think about anything, to, what what could I end up on? I I, you know, I imagine you'll have some viewers who are young people. Uh, you know, some who are like old like me, and yeah, kind of doesn't matter if I can change their minds. But uh, they're young people. I hope I can encourage a few young people to think about the amazing career they can have in uh, the domain of science, mm. where they're part of something that's bigger than themselves, where they contribute to something. But also possibly uh, if our systems stay functional, uh, the influence they could have if they become leaders in, in, in government as well. Um, science and government are both ways to contribute to something that's larger than ourselves. And I think the biggest risk to, for somebody uh, in terms of having a successful uh, career is, is narcissism and self-absorption. And, and the thing that leads to successful lives, I think, is to be part of something 
which is larger than yourself. And the military does this for some people too. I, you know, I hope young people will consider that as well. But don't don't just think that becoming uh, 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 the um, uh, you know the the leader of some startup is the only way to to have a successful life. No, of course, that's so well said. Making the world a better place is. Uh, well, you know, I, you know, I wouldn't quite phrase it that way because that, you know, that's almost become like a parody of what they say in Silicon Valley. The way I say it though is be part of something that's bigger than you that you believe in so that you'll contribute to it, but it will outlast you and it will give your, your life meaning. That's yeah, I think they say it in Silicon Valley because they feel that they don't have the meaning. And so they want exactly. to pretend that they do have the meaning, yeah, whereas working in science... You know what you're doing. Trivial apps where they're they're just trying to get rich and you know take over a market and they try to imbue it with some some meaning. One of the things that was sad at Stanford was that I used to see these business people who'd come to Stanford after they made a bunch of money, hmm. and it was like they were saying, "Well, I made a bunch of money, but I don't have any meaning in my life, so I want to hang out with you academics because you guys seem to have something going on." And it, and it just seemed like, gosh, you know, why did why did you waste your whole life chasing all of this money? Didn't you know in advance it was going to turn out this way? But unfortunately, uh, most people seem seem not to realize that. Uh, so follow, follow the heart. That's uh... yeah, and and meaning. Think about what gives your life meaning, uh, because uh, that's more important than than most people realize. Heart and meaning. I love this. Uh, Paul's was really fantastic. Okay, well, so uh, I, I enjoyed it. I'm going to go, um, what was it? Oh, I'm going to go watch the Feynman uh, video and then I'll, I'll check out some of your other podcasts too. Thank you so much. Uh, you have a, okay. a wonderful day and stay safe. <laughs> Take care.